This is KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And today, on Wednesday, we are sponsoring a weekly shiur by Rav uh, Dr. Avi Wolfish, who's been doing a lot of work in the last few years on the study of Mishnah specifically, giving a weekly shiur on reading Mishnah. This series of shiurim is going to deal with a relatively neglected work, the Mishnah. Some of you on hearing this statement may object that in fact the Mishnah is one of the most frequently studied books of the Torah Shabalpeh. And indeed it's true that uh, anyone who has studied Torah Shabalpeh has had uh, considerable contact with the study of Mishnah. Nonetheless, uh, my argument, and this is reflected in the title of uh, this series of Shiurim, reading Mishnah, is that uh, Mishnah as a text has very rarely been approached. For the most part, people study the contents of Mishnah, and this is done usually in one of two frameworks. One framework, probably the most common, is that uh, people, as part of their study of Gemara, of Talmud, uh, obviously open uh, every passage of Talmud with the relevant Mishnah. Um, usually, the study of Mishnah in the context of uh, Gemara study is not very intensive because uh, Rashi, having already set the tone, Bagmara Mefaresh or Mefarash Bagmara, um, we read the Mishnah. Occasionally, we may pay attention to one or two uh, uh, eccentric things or strange uh, enigmatic statements in the Mishnah. But we're not too perturbed about that because usually Rashi tells us right away that the Gemara will deal with the questions and so we um, prepare ourselves patiently for the real action of the Sugya where the Gemara will raise the questions, suggest the answers, challenge them, and so forth. Um, so the Mishnah is really studied there basically as preparation for the Gemara. Of course, the other aspect of studying Mishnah in this way is that Mishnah is uh, approached in a very disjointed fashion. Uh, rarely do people do what I think ought to be done whenever you study Gemara, which is read a whole section of Mishnah first, preferably the whole Masechet, and if not that, and at the very least, the whole chapter uh, of Mishnah before you approach the Gemara. Uh, that's done very rarely, and as a result, uh, uh, people's impression of the Mishnah is very disjointed. You get one little piece of Mishnah that will be discussed. Afterwards, you get another little piece of Mishnah that will be discussed. And you don't really get a picture of the uh, coherence of the, of the whole, of an entire unit. Uh, of Mishnah. That's one of the frameworks in which Mishnah is usually studied. The other framework, of course, is what I would call a Bikyut framework. This is done either with people who are studying Mishnah Yomit or a Perak Yomi of Mishnah or uh, studying uh, Mishnah on a regular basis in order to get a broad overview of the world of uh, Halakha, of uh, Halakha from the Talmudic period, uh, or it can be done in the framework of classes for beginners or classes for school children, uh, 
classes uh, for women uh, be, uh, before or after they may have studied Gemara on some level or another. Uh, in all of those frameworks, the the usual goal of, uh, of studying Mishnah is precisely to get uh, a broad cross-section of the uh, halachic world of the Talmudic sages, but uh, uh, again, very little attention is paid to how the Mishnah actually works as a text. How does it cohere? How does it hang together? Um, uh, These questions as to how Mishnah coheres, how it hangs together, are questions that in the Torah world, in the world of the Beit Midrash, um, generally haven't been asked to a very great extent. Occasionally, you'll find a Tosvod here or there, or a comment by one or another of the uh, Rishonim, the Ritva, uh, likes to quote a, a comment on these things occasionally. Uh, the Rambam in Perush Mishnah gave an explanation as to how the different Masechtot are ordered uh, within, within the Siddarim, but uh, didn't devote very much attention to explaining how each Masechet uh, was ordered. Uh, the Me'iri in his Beit HaBechira gives an introduction to uh, to each chapter where he lists the topics, but uh, very often if you look at the Me'iri's introduction, you'll wonder how the topics fit together. It seems just to jump from one topic to another. Very, very occasionally the Me'iri will suggest why uh, we've moved from one topic to another. For, for the most part, he uh, he'll rest content with just listing the topics and not uh, not explaining how they cohere together. And the same is true for most Mishnah commentaries. Among the Mishnah commentaries who uh, have, uh, relatively speaking, paid some attention to the order of the Mishnah, the Tosfot Yom Tov, who usually does so when he's relying on, uh, on Rishonim, Tosvot, or the Ran, or one or another of the Rishonim. Um, the Melechet Shlomo, Rabbi Shlomo Ha'adani, a contemporary of the Tosvot Yom Tov from the, uh, uh, from the 17th century, uh, who lived in Eretz Israel, and uh, he, in some places, pays some significant attention to how the Mishnah is compiled. We'll refer back to one such comment of his uh, later on in this year, um, but none of this is done in a very systematic fashion. In uh, contemporary Mishnah study, I would say starting uh, the academic study of uh, Talmud and particularly of Mishnah started in the mid-19th century, and from that point on, uh, you've had some scholars starting with Rabbi Frankel, uh, in his Mavola Mishnah and continuing with uh, leading Mishnah scholars of the 20th century um, who have suggested ways of explaining various uh, anomalies in how Mishnah is uh, uh, is ordered. But uh, as we'll see in, in these shiurim, uh, the work done on all of these levels has, has left a lot to be desired. And the Mishnah as a text is not only neglected by most of the uh, people uh, in the Beit Midrash uh, or Balabatim who study Mishnah, but even in more scholarly circles, uh, real serious, intensive attention to 
how the Mishnah coheres, how it works together, how the details add up to something uh, which is more than the sum of its parts, is uh, uh, is a rather neglected, uh, rather neglected field. Um, we won't continue with uh, more lengthy introductions than that. What I'm intending to do in this series of shiurim is to pay serious attention to this issue, to read Mishnah, not to read the contents of Mishnah, but to read Mishnah to try to see how the uh, redactor of the Mishnah, the Mishnah editor, Rabbi Yudah Nasi, around the year 200 CE, how he took the materials at his disposal, the uh, proto-Mishnayot that existed before his time, and uh, the collections that that had uh, been been compiled starting from the end of the uh, period of uh, Bayit Sheni until his day, how he took these materials and reshaped them, and and what his uh, goals were in doing so, and what meanings he modified or added by uh, by means of of this uh, by means of this work of of redaction. <coughs> Our subject for the Shirim will be Masechet uh, Rosh Hashanah, which I assume will fill up the bulk of our Ten Shirim. If we finish the Ten Shirim and we have a little more, so we'll uh, get a little more Mishnah under our belt uh, besides Masechet uh, Rosh Hashanah. And here and there, uh, particularly in the introduction, I'll allude to uh, uh, parts of Mishnah elsewhere and we'll look at and see how they're compiled uh, as well. Um, and so, um, let's now commence with the study of Masechet Rosh Hashanah. Um, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, uh, among the reasons why it's an interesting Masechet, is because the problems in its arrangement uh, are so clear. Uh, the first problem that strikes anyone who studies Masechet Rosh Hashanah is the sharp jump from the first two Mishnayot, which talk about uh, the concept of Rosh Hashanah, Arba'a Rashi Shanim Heim. Then we have Arba'a Pirkei Din, four times of, uh, of judgment, or periods of judgment. Uh, how exactly that fits in, we'll talk about a little later. Um, and then a sharp break, where we jump right into the topic of Kiddush HaChodesh, the sanctification of the new moon, which basically means managing Jewish calendar with particular emphasis, as we'll see, on the on the festivals, on the sanctified times that uh, that appear on uh, on the Jewish calendar. That second topic then lasts for the next two chapters till the end of chapter two, and chapters three and four return us to the topic of Rosh Hashanah, but with specific emphasis now on the special mitzvot of Rosh Hashanah, particularly uh, the mitzvah of Shofar, which is discussed at length in Paragimel, and uh, some details of mitzvah Shofar are left, for whatever reason, for Perak Dalid, uh, and the special prayers of Rosh Hashanah, which are discussed in the latter half of Perak Dalid. Uh, you may notice I've jumped over the first half of Perak Dalid, which... Uh, has its own topic that we'll uh, discuss uh, later on, but of course it also, at the at least at the beginning, deals with the topic of 
uh, of Rosh Hashanah and blowing the shofar on, uh, on Rosh Hashanah. So, why do we open with the topic of Rosh Hashanah in the first Mishnah and second Mishnahs we'll see it's a kind of uh, uh, appendix to the first Mishnah then break jump, cut to the topic of uh, Kiddush HaChodesh and uh, after two chapters or so dealing with the topic of Kiddush HaChodesh we return back once again to the topic of, of Rosh Hashanah. It seems to be a strange way of, of, constructing, uh, of constructing a Masechet. A um, uh, second question that we'll uh, add in into the bargain here is uh, how exactly do these two topics fit together, Kiddush HaChodesh and Rosh Hashanah? It would seem that Kiddush HaChodesh has relevance to all of the festivals, not only to, uh, to Rosh Hashanah, and uh, how exactly these topics fit together, why exactly these two topics were selected to, uh, uh, to fit together is another uh, issue that, uh, that bears some thinking about. A second problem with Masachet Rosh Hashanah has to do with the chapter endings. Um, some of the chapter endings uh, have been noted already to be problematic, uh, uh, as early as uh, the Teferet Yisrael have noted uh, one of the problems and others have been noted by uh, contemporary scholars. But uh, if you look at the chapter endings, you'll notice that none of the chapters seems to end in the right place. Um, the, the first chapter um, uh, discusses for uh, for the most part, starting with Mishnah Dalid, Mishnah Dalid through Mishnah Tet, about two thirds of the chapter discusses Kiddush Hakodesh with particular emphasis on how one accomplishes Kiddush Hakodesh on Shabbat, since Kiddush Hakodesh will involve a Chilul Shabbat, particularly on the part of the Edim who have to travel uh, in order to arrive at the court and give their testimony about the new moon, and um, they, of course, have to violate Shabbat in order to do so. Um, and this topic basically continues into the middle of the second chapter. Uh, the second chapter opens with uh, if they don't recognize him, then, or if he's not known to the court, then they should uh, send to, uh, together with him someone else who can bear witness to who he is and that he is a reliable witness. Um, and as we see in the parallel Tosefta and as is noted as well in the Yerushalmi, the chidush of this Mishnah is that this is done even on Shabbat. In other words, even though the second witness is not himself a witness to the new moon, but since he's necessary in order for the testimony of the first witness to be accepted, so he can also violate Shabbat, can and should also violate uh, violate Shabbat. And Mishnah in the second chapter, uh, they've arrived, as we saw in the previous, uh, uh, in the earlier part of that Mishnah, they've arrived in Beit Ya'azek, in this courtyard called Beit Ya'azek, 
and uh, after giving their testimony, the halacha, at least as it originally was, says the Mishnah, is that the witnesses should not budge from that place all day, having violated Chum Shabbat in order to come to the court. So uh, they were entitled to violate Chum Shabbat, but uh, having violated Chum Shabbat, the halacha is that uh, they now have to stay where they are and can't uh, depart from that area uh, for all of Shabbat. Of course, that uh, could serve as a disincentive for witnesses to come, and therefore, Rabban Gamliel Hazakein, not the usual Rabban Gamliel who we find in the Mishnah, Rabban Gamliel of Yavne, okay, but an ancestor of his, the old Rabban Gamliel, the Rabban Gamliel from the time of Beit Hamikdash, he instituted Shehu Malchim Alpayim Amal Chol Ruach. He instituted that they should be able to uh, to walk like anyone else, 2,000 amot in any direction. In other words, the, the halakha restricting them to one area has been waived in that, that case. And, uh, of course, this is in order to encourage witnesses to come and, and not penalize them for having performed the mitzvah of coming to the court to testify about the new moon. This halakha, of course, exists only on Shabbat which means that until the middle, the midpoint of the second chapter, we're still talking about uh, witnesses coming on Shabbat. And so um, uh, one of the leading contemporary Mishnah scholars, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Nachum Epstein, uh, has wondered why it is that the chapter stops in the middle. We're still in the middle of a topic of witnesses violating Shabbat. We should close that topic with what happens after the witnesses who have violated Shabbat gave their testimony and how Rabban Gamliel Zaken permits them to uh, roam around freely on, uh, uh, on Shabbat. That would be the, the appropriate finale for that topic. That's where the first chapter, in fact, uh, uh, should end. So the first chapter seems to end rather early, as Epstein points out. The second chapter also seems to end rather early. It ends in a dramatic fashion with the very dramatic story of Rabban Gamaliel and Rabbi Yoshua, a story that we'll pay close attention to in uh, uh, one of our following shiurim. But uh, that which we would imagine should conclude the topic of Kiddush HaChodesh, leaving all of chapters 3 and 4 open for discussing the laws of... Uh, for discussing the laws of... Uh, uh, Shofar and other laws of Rosh Hashanah, um, in fact, does not conclude the topic of Kiddush HaChodesh. The topic of Kiddush HaChodesh continues into Perek Gimel, Mishnah Aleph, Ra'uhu Beitin V'chol Yisrael. Okay, what happens if the Beitin and all of Israel together saw the new moon? How does that impact on the, uh, uh, on the Halakha? Um, only that Mishnah in this chapter deals with and then again, we have this sharp cut to the topic of shofar, kola shofarot, kshirim, chutz mishal para. That's the topic of Paragimel mishnah bet. So, uh, and and of course, the rest of the chapter deals with the uh, deals with the laws of shofar. So, um, it seems that Paragbet also ends just one bit too early. Okay, ended with Rabban Gamliel, and then left out one of the Mishnayot, which uh, continues to deal with the laws of 
of Kiddush, uh, of Kiddush HaChodesh. Um, chapters 3 and 4 also end in a rather strange fashion. Chapter 3 seems to go on a bit too long, as opposed to the first two chapters that seem to have ended a bit too early. Chapter 3 seems to go on a bit too long, concluding the laws of Shofar with the discussion of Moshe's hands and how uh, Am Yisrael, uh, and in the time of the uh, war against Amalek, uh, because Moshe was raising his hands, they looked up at his hands and directed their hearts towards their Father in heaven, and then they were uh, then they were saved. Um, we'll see in one of the later shiurim why this is an appropriate finale for the laws of Shofar in in chapter three. But uh, in any event, uh, that would seem to be a very appropriate and dramatic ending to the laws of Shofar. And instead, the Mishnah seems to throw in a kind of afterthought at the very end of the chapter. We go back to the laws of Shofar. After the Agadic finale, one law of Shofar that strangely seems to have been left out of the earlier discussion of the laws of Shofar gets thrown into the end that uh, only those who are obligated in the mitzvah of shofar can can blow the shofar. And why the Mishnah couldn't find room for this halakha in the earlier discussion of the laws of shofar and instead saved it for after the finale is again uh, a puzzling point in the uh, in the Mishnah. And finally, in chapter four, um, the uh, where we'll focus only on the latter half. The latter half of chapter 4 starts with uh, Mishnah Hey Seder Brachot, the order of the special prayers that we recite on Rosh Hashanah, and uh, it talks about their interaction with the Tkiot. And after several Mishnayot to talk about uh, 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 the talk about the Brachot and their interaction. With the Tkiot, then it seems there's another kind of afterthought. The Mishnah, Mishnah Tet of chapter 4, again seems to be, oh, I never told you what what uh, Tkiot you're supposed to blow. I told you all about the kind of Shofar you're supposed to use and how you have to hear it and who can blow the Shofar. All of these things I learned back in chapter 3. But uh, yes, there is this topic of uh, which Tkiot do we sound? What sounds do do I uh, have to uh, sound from the shofar? So we have the sedet kiot shalosh shel shalosh shalosh, and the uh, and then the explanation of how that works. So we've moved then from the topic of the special brachot of the shofar to the kiot, and then again at the very end of the chapter. Uh, there seems to be another kind of afterthought. Keshem shashaliyach atzibur chayav, kach kol yachid v'yachid chayav. Rabban Gamliel Omer, shaliyach atzibur motzi et harabim yedei chovatan. Okay, we have a dispute between Rabban Gamliel and the Tanakama as to whether it's enough for the shaliyach atzibur to recite the prayer, and here we're talking clearly about the prayer, is this an everyday prayer as the Gemara understands it, or is this specifically the Rosh Hashanah prayer? That's something we'll discuss when we get to that point. Uh, 
but uh, in any event, uh, we're talking about prayer. We seem to be reverting back to the topic of the brachot, of the special prayers that are recited, the tefillat amidah, that, that was the topic that we started discussing in Mishnah. Hey, we moved beyond that topic, back to the topic of the sounds that are emitted from the shofar, and uh, again, we seem to be reverting back, uh, kind of, uh, again, uh, it seems to be a kind of afterthought. So here again, it seems that the chapter ends a bit too late, because we should have closed the chapter uh, with the laws of shofar, and, and that would be an appropriate finale for Masechet Rosh Hashanah, and instead, somehow or other, we tack on to the very end of the, of the chapter, this, this uh, unit that talks about uh, uh, that talks once again about the brachot. So to sum up, um, there are other problems and issues, other specific Mishnayot that seem to be out of order, but our kind of sketchy overview of the structure of Masechet Rosh Hashanah has shown us, first of all, the way in which the Mishnah jumps back and forth between the two topics seems to be puzzling the topic of Kiddush HaChodesh and the topic of Rosh Hashanah. Uh, start with one, cut to the other, cut back to the first one uh, once again. It's done abruptly. It's done in the middle of chapters, okay? starting with Mishnah Gimel of Perak Aleph, starting with Mishnah Bet of Perak Gimel. Uh, so that's one issue. The second issue is how the chapters never seem to end in an ordinary fashion. Chapters 1 and 2 seem to end before they're finished discussing the topic. Chapters 3 and 4 seem to run on after we would appear to have concluded uh, concluded the topic. Um, Okay, so these are some of the kinds of issues that we have in, in understanding Mishnah. Of course, beyond that issue... Um, there's the broader issue of how does the Mishnah present a topic? How does the Mishnah present uh, present their discussion of any given topic? And anyone who's in any way familiar with Mishnah will will probably be familiar with the fact that the Mishnah isn't the Rambam. Okay, the Rambam presents topics in coherent, logical fashion. If he's pre- presenting the mitzvah of Kriyachma, he'll first tell you there is a mitzvah taseh to recite. Kriyachma, he'll tell you what Kriyachma is, three parashiyot. It has to be recited in the morning and the evening. And after uh, going through some of these topics in some detail, the Rambam will get to the topic of what are the precise times at night and during the day for reciting Kriyachma, as opposed to the Mishnah, which jumps right in with Me'ematai, Korin Kriyachma Be'arvin Ubesharin. That's the correct text of the Mishnah. When do from when do we read Kriyachma and until when do we read Kriyachma? In the evening, in the morning. We don't know what Kriyachma is yet. We don't know uh, what the Parashiyot are. We don't know that there is a mitzvah to recite it in the morning and 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 the evening. And the Mishnah is already talking about the precise times for recital. And this is a Take Masechet Shabbat, or take, take Masechet Gitin, or almost any Masechet you care to, you will almost invariably find that the Mishnah does not start off by presenting the basic underlying themes, by presenting the topic in an orderly, uh, in an orderly fashion. Um, and that, of course, is true 
with regard to mitzvah shofar uh, and and uh, and kiddush hakodesh uh, and kiddush hakodesh as well. So th- these are some of the issues that will concern us in this series of of shiurim. Um, what uh, we'll get a bit of a start in the remaining minutes of this first shiur uh, in in uh, trying to uh, get a handle on on some of these issues. First of all, just a, a note about the uh, about how the chapters end. The fact that none of the chapters seems to end in a logical fashion uh, is one of the factors in Yaakov Nachum Epstein. Remember him? He uh, was one of the leading Mishnah scholars of the 20th century. Um, he suggested, in fact, that the division of the Mishnah into chapters uh, was not original to the Mishnah. Rabbi Yudan Nasi divided the Mishnah into Masechtot. He did not, claims Epstein, divide the Mishnah into chapters. Uh, of course, Epstein is a bit of a problem maintaining this thesis because we know from several places in the Gemara that uh, the Amoraim, in fact, Amoraim as early as the third generation, were already aware of chapters of Mishnah. They knew how to identify chapters of Mishnah by name, as appears in the Gemara, in Masechet Nida, and in several other places. Um, and so, uh, to argue that this is not an original division is, uh, is a bit uh, audacious on Epstein's part. Um, however, Epstein is not deterred by this knowledge. Epstein argues that the Mishnah was divided into chapters very early, but not by Rabbi Yudanasi himself, rather by the Tanaim Shoneha Mishnayot, during the period of the Talmud, of the Amoraim. Uh, when the Amoraim studied Mishnah, there was a Tana in every Beit Midrash. The Tana was a kind of walking encyclopedia. He knew the Mishnah and Baraitot by heart, and he would quote them, cite them by heart, and uh, then they would be discussed in the framework of the of the Beit Midrash. So these Tanaim, who the Talmud uh, tells us in several places, were not always tremendous Tamidei Chachamim. They were not always terribly uh, um, uh, uh, terribly versed in understanding how to read the Mishnah, what the Mishnah means, or what Baraitot mean. They simply had very powerful uh, photographic memories, but weren't always uh, leading experts in understanding. So when they divided the Mishnayot into chapters, they didn't always do so in accordance with the contents of the Mishnah. In fact, uh, in Epstein's view, they, uh, uh, they did so mostly when uh, you know, they wanted to catch their breath, they got a little tired, needed a coffee break, and so they would say, okay, here's a good place to end the chapter. By and large, they guessed right, they ended the chapter in a place that made sense, but uh, there are quite a few places in the Mishnah, not only in Masechad Rosh Hashanah, but many other examples elsewhere as well, of places where they ended the Mishnah in an illogical, uh, in an illogical place, and uh, Epstein would argue that uh, Masechad Rosh Hashanah has at least a couple of examples of that, uh, of that phenomenon. I'd like to start off by noting is that uh, if we look closely at the Mishnah's language, I think we can see 
right away that Epstein is dead wrong on this uh, thesis that the Mishnah chapters were not done in a logical fashion. And uh, the way we can see that is by close reading, paying close attention to the Mishnah's language, and particularly by paying close attention to a tool that will serve us throughout the Shiurim, and that is uh, verbal links, uh, word associations, and often word plays and, and patterns that you can find um, deployed in, in the Mishnah. And these are a clear uh, indication that uh, the, many of the phenomena that we've noted in Mishnah are there on purpose. And if they're there on purpose, it means that Rabbi Yudah Nasi put them there, okay, aware of the fact that they're there and, and with uh, a full intent as to what he wanted them to accomplish. So let's start off with the Mishnah endings. The Mishnah that concludes the first chapter uh, concludes with the Pasuk, this is brought in this Mishnah as an instance, as a proof for the halacha that al mahalach yom laila vayom mechalalim atashabat v'yotzim leidut hachodesh. This is the main topic of the first chapter, and uh, the first chapter concludes with the proof text, with the pasuk on which we can base this conclusion that uh, the witnesses for Kiddush HaChodesh can, can and should violate Shabbat. Why? Because of the Pasuk, Ele Moadei Hashem Mikrei Kodesh, Asher Tikruotam, Bimoadam. Bimoadam, at their set times, okay, since the obligation is to proclaim the new month at its appointed time, at its appointed time, Chazal Darshan here, as they do in many places, as meaning even on Shabbat. The appointed time is so important that it even sets aside the laws of Shabbat, and so Shabbat may be violated and should be violated in order to uh, determine the new moon, to sanctify the new moon at its appointed time. Now the interesting thing is that at the end of this, uh, at the end of the second chapter, At the end of the uh, second chapter, we have the uh, famous clash between Rabbi Yoshua and Rabban Gamliel regarding a month, in fact, uh, not only a month, the month of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, that Rabban Gamliel sanctified uh, on a certain day based on witnesses who seem to have contradicted themselves. And Rabbi Yoshua joins Rabbi Dosa in roundly condemning this decision and rejecting it. Uh, Rabban Gamliel decrees upon Rabbi Yoshua that he must violate the day that he believes to be Yom Kippur in order to, uh, to, to demonstrate that uh, only Rabban Gamliel's uh, determination of, uh, of Rosh Hashanah was correct, was acceptable. Uh, and in his deliberations as to whether to surrender to this decree or not, uh, his disciple, Rabbi Akiva, comes and tries to teach him that, in fact, kol Rabban Gamliel, asui, whatever Rabban Gamliel did, whether it was done correctly or not, 
is in the end valid and and halachically uh, binding. He tries to prove it from the pasuk, Elem Hashem Kodesh, Asher Otam Bimoadam. The very same pasuk that was brought at the end of the first chapter to prove that you violate Shabbat in order to sanctify the new moon is brought by Rabbi Akiva at the end of the second chapter in order to prove that Rabban Gamliel, uh, Rabban Gamliel's ruling is, uh, is binding. And so we have a, a connection, a, a verbal connection between the end of the first chapter and the end of the second chapter. Uh, as we'll see uh, in ensuing Shirim, uh, this verbal connection is enormously interesting, and in fact, there would seem to be, I'll leave this for you to be a, uh, uh, for a homework to, to try to ponder this uh, for the meantime, uh, there would seem to be in fact a contradiction between what the first chapter learns from this verse and what Rabbi Akiva learns from the same, from the same pasuk. There is, by the way, another very interesting connection between the end of the first chapter and the end of the second chapter, and that is that the Mishnah that closes the first chapter describes how if the witnesses who are traveling to uh, sanctify the new moon need protection, then then you can even take staffs in order to uh, ward off attackers. And Rabbi, Rabbi Yoshua is commanded by Rabban Gamliel at the end of the second chapter to appear before him in Yavna with his staff. Okay, with his staff and with his uh, and with his money belt uh, to show that it is a, an ordinary weekday and not a sanctified day in in his view. So the staff also connects these two chapters. We'll talk about what that means uh, further on. Uh, chapters three and four also end with uh, sentences that re- are highly reminiscent of one another. Chapter three ends with a sentence. Whoever is not obligated in a matter cannot uh, discharge the obligation of the rabim, of the community. And Rabban Gamliel closes chapter 4 by saying, Shleach Tzibur, Motsi The Shleach uh, Tzibur does discharge the obligation of the rabim, of the community. So again, we have two sentences that are almost identical in their language and structure. Here also, the alert reader, listener will notice that the two sentences are very similar, but in fact they're opposite. Uh, chapter 3 ends with the, shla, uh, the people who cannot discharge the obligation of the, uh, uh, of the community. Chapter 4 ends with those who can discharge the obligation of the community. And so it would appear then that the chapter endings are very carefully thought through. They may seem to us very strange. When you try to follow the order of topics, the order of topics doesn't seem to work out very well with the chapter endings. But if you follow not the topics, but the language, the language seems to be a key to understanding how Rabbi Yudah Nasi, in fact, structured these chapters. Chapter 1 he wanted to end with the Pasuk, And he wanted chapter 2 to close 
with a story that revolved around the very same pasuk. Chapters 3 and 4, he wanted both of them to conclude with uh, statements regarding how one causes the community to discharge their obligation. Why Rabbi Yudah Hanasi wanted to do this is another question, and uh, that's of course a question that we'll have to uh, discuss at length uh, uh, in ensuing shiurim. Uh, this shiur has come to a close. What I would like to suggest in order to get full benefit from future shiurim is that uh, it would be advantageous uh, for anyone who is listening to the shiurim to look over the relevant Mishnah chapter in advance of the shiur, look it over, and to try to ask himself, how does he see the coherence of this Mishnah chapter? Do the Mishnayot, in fact, cohere? Is there one topic? Are there two topics? Is there a relationship between the topics? Are the topics presented in cogent and coherent, uh, and coherent fashion? Uh, and as I've begun to note already, if you could pick up on some of the uses of language, words that repeat themselves, and particularly when they repeat themselves in interesting ways, uh, any of these things that you notice uh, as you go through the chapter will give you an advantage in following the shiurim. So, in advance of the next shiur, try to look over the first chapter, uh, Rosh Hashanah Perak Aleph, and we'll discuss that in our next shiur.